So saving 90% on investing costs over a lifetime means paying a little more for an airline ticket once or twice a year. That's probably a good trade-off. Welcome to episode 11 of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti, and it's good to be back for another episode. In this edition of the podcast, we're going to break down a recent article in the Atlantic magazine called Are Index Funds Evil? And in the Ask the Spud segment, I'm going to offer some counsel for a new investor who seems to have overestimated his risk tolerance. But before we get to that, I'd like to spend a little time talking about online brokerages. Now, if you're a do-it-yourself investor who uses ETFs, this is one of the first decisions you need to make. And a decade or so ago, when I started writing about ETF investing, there were huge differences in discount brokerages. The big banks were all charging about 30 bucks per trade. Their online services were clunky and mostly unimpressive. Well, the good news is that the industry has improved a lot since then. Costs have come down, the differences between the bank-owned brokerages have narrowed quite a bit, and there are a number of independent players such as Questrade and Qtrade that have become important low-cost players in this arena. There's also another trend in online brokerages that's starting to develop. Now, remember that by definition, a discount brokerage is little more than an order taker. I mean, these were created specifically as an alternative to full service brokers who also provided advice about what to buy and sell. Now, discount brokerages have been hugely liberating for DIY investors who are prepared to do their own research. But as more and more rookie investors go this route, it's become clear that many of them really could benefit from some help. So even if you're an index investor who has no interest in picking stocks, you might still need advice about how to build a portfolio that's well diversified and with an appropriate level of risk. Some of that gap is being filled these days by robo-advisors. So these are firms such as Wealthsimple, Nest Wealth, Modern Advisor, Just Wealth, and several others. These firms choose ETFs for you, they place the trades, and they look after the rebalancing. And we're now starting to see online brokerages offer some level of advice through their platforms as well. So BMO Investor Line, National Bank Direct, and Questrade, for example, all have launched services that are similar to what the robo-advisors offer, including designing and maintaining ETF portfolios for a modest fee. At this point, though, it's not really clear how good these services really are. So to learn more about this space, I spoke to Mike Foy, Senior Director of the Wealth Management Practice at JD Power. That's the research firm that's well known for measuring customer experience in industries such as automotive, telecom, financial services. Now, J.D. Power has just released the newest installment of its Canadian Self-Directed Investor Satisfaction Study, which surveyed hundreds of clients of online brokerages to get a sense of how well DIY investors are being served and to learn more about how brokerages are evolving in this country. I hope you find our discussion helpful. On the line with me now is Michael Foy of J.D. Power, who's joining us from his office in New York. Mike was the lead author of the Canadian Self-Directed Investor Satisfaction Study. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Okay, great. I'd like to start just by asking you to tell us a little bit about the methodology of this study. So who are these investors and how did you collect all of this information about them? Sure. So we work with a variety of different consumer panels, uh, leading consumer panels in Canada, and we're really serving folks um, by email, and these are Canadians who identify 
their primary investment account as um, one with a one of the self-directed providers. Uh, so these are not folks who are primarily working with a financial advisor. Uh, they are self-directed, and uh, we had uh, just over 2,500 Canadian investors that were surveyed uh, between May and June of this year. Okay. And you covered all of the major big bank brokerages, right? So the big five or six, if you include National Bank, and then you had the independents there as well, Quest Trade, Q Trade, Credential Direct, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. We survey all the, based on our market share analysis, all the largest providers uh, in the industry. Now, one of the things that jumped out when I looked at the study was that in the rankings for overall satisfaction, the scores really seem to fall within a pretty narrow range. I mean, the industry average was 760 out of a scale of 1,000. And then you had the top firm scored 785 and the lowest was 752. So there wasn't really, you know, any standouts that were way better or way worse than the industry average. So I wanted to ask you if that was surprising and if the implication of that is, you know, does this suggest that all of the brokerages have very similar offerings and service levels? Yeah, so I think it's it's not surprising in the sense that it it's a that convergence or compression in results is is part of an ongoing trend. So we've seen the the range of scores between the top provider and the bottom provider narrowing for a number of years. I do think it suggests something about uh, the similarity, the lack of differentiation um, across firms. So, uh, and I think it also reflects a couple of other things that have happened over recent years. So, one is is the um, the the compression of pricing. So, when we look back over the last five years, the the gap between the highest price providers and the lowest price providers has closed by about 50%. So there's much less differentiation, not only in the experience, uh, but in pricing. And I think that is contributing to the the similarity in scores. Um, we also see that firms are paying a lot more attention to measuring client satisfaction. You know, whether it's through our research or their own research or third-party research, they're paying a lot of attention to the client experience and in reacting to it. And so uh, I think that's also contributing to a lot of similarity uh, and the outcomes across uh, across different firms in the study. In addition to the price compression that we've seen, because I certainly remember this, I mean, a few years ago, not so long ago, you know, it was twenty nine ninety five to purchase an ETF at many of the brokerages. Now the, the pricing seems to be roughly 10 bucks across the board with a few exceptions. Um, in addition to the improvement in pricing, are there any other specific improvements that have led to increased satisfaction among brokerages? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you point out the fees. You know, we've seen uh, a significant decline in recent years in, in fees, um, but also I think in um, more variety and quality in terms of things like information resources, mobile capabilities, uh, and tools. So I think firms have, have built up um, what they're providing uh, beyond just a, a trading platform. Um, and so some of those capabilities have uh, have improved. I think that uh, firms have gotten better at creating more intuitive digital user experiences. And um, you see a lot of the, the web redesigns that have happened over the last couple of years, which I think are much better at enabling people to more quickly and easily, you know, find what they need to find on the site and get value out of um, what their provider is offering. 
Now, staying with that same idea of you know getting beyond trading, because I know that I feel like a lot of DIY investors are very focused on you know commissions and the nuts and bolts of making transactions in their brokerage. But if you're using a strategy like the type that I recommend, you know, a low cost diversified index fund um, portfolio with very few transactions, that's not always going to be what dominates your experience. And one of the things that you'd pointed out in the study was that it was about 64% or so of self-directed investors said their firm didn't offer any opportunity to do any goal setting. Um, But it also noticed that those that did, the brokerages that did offer that uh, service had a higher satisfaction level among their clients. So I, I think that goal setting is something that's very important and maybe the brokerages don't see it as part of their role, but of the ones that are doing it right, you know, what are they doing and, and how could they improve? Yeah, so I, I think it's a good point. And I do think there's an appetite for, uh, for help in that area that, that our data really supports. Um, and, and I do think that there's a large segment of the market out there that um, maybe either doesn't have the, the wealth or, or the complexity of needs, um, or maybe just isn't interested in a traditional full-service relationship, um, but does want help and guidance with things like setting goals um, and implementing a strategy to reach those goals. I think firms are starting to recognize that. Um, so we see um, some firms, uh, you know, among the big banks, I think the firm that performed best on this, uh, on, that, on the metric that you referenced, um, was RBC Direct. Um, and so, you know, they do offer as part of their kind of onboarding process, uh, goal setting tool. Um, so it's, it's having tools that are effective and it's also making sure those tools are easily discoverable, um, as you're going through the onboarding process. Um, and I think one thing that's going to drive innovation and improvement in this area is the emergence of the robo advisor, uh, the digital advice platforms. Uh, so you see firms like uh, WealthSimple, for example, um, that actually, I think, do a really good job of this in creating a very slick, clean user interface that really takes you through the process of uh, providing information about you know, your, your age, your asset level, your, your primary objectives, your risk tolerance, um, your preferences and your experience with investing, and really uses that data to help develop a model portfolio for you. I think that... Um, the large banks and other incumbents could can really learn from um, from the kind of user experience, the digital user experience that some of those fintech companies are are creating, and, and really be able to weave that into the experience that they're delivering to their self-directed investors. So that's a great point, and I should clarify for people listening that uh, the study did not include the self, uh, what I would call, I guess, standalone robo-advisors. So that would be Wealth Simple, Nest Wealth, Modern Advisor, et cetera. Um, it only looked at uh, the larger bro- online brokerages, um, but it did look at the brokerages that offered some kind of service. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Maybe you can outline a little bit about the uh, sort of range of advice type services that online brokerages are now offering. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So um, we we didn't specifically ask, uh, or we didn't rank the firms as you mentioned, uh, who were um, the, uh, the sort of the independent uh, robo advisor types. Um, but we did ask questions um, of the online brokerage customers who may have used a robo advice tool um, as a, uh, a secondary 
um, you know, account. And, you know, we, we definitely see a growing appetite for that kind of support, um, particularly among millennials, right, and younger investors who are more tech savvy, who are more open to those kinds of solutions. Um, so we do see an, a- an appetite uh, among so-called self-directed investors um, for the kind of, of um, service that's provided by these kinds of tools, whether it's through an independent provider like a, a Nest Wealth or a Wealth Simple, or whether it's through one of the the, the digital advice or robo platforms that are, are now being you know rolled out by the the large banks um, as well. So we definitely think that there's an underserved segment of the market that is um, is self-directed, but is really looking for um, more help and guidance uh, than um, than traditionally has been available through uh, the online brokerages. And I think the form of that advice and guidance can be can be you know varied, right? So it's you know we talked a little bit about help with goal setting, um, with asset allocation. Um, so I think it's 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 help with planning, um, and and it may in some cases be help with um, with portfolio management of the kind that uh, you can get from a, a a digital platform at a much lower price point, obviously than uh, than going to a traditional uh, full service um, advisor. Yeah, so that that's a really interesting subtlety because when I hear, like for example, in the study, you had, there's a couple of places where it's mentioned that there is uh, a, seems to be a desire on the part of self-directed investors to get some level of advice. But I'm curious about what type of advice they're looking for, right? Because is it, for example, which ETF do I use for U.S. equities in my portfolio? Is it security selection, or is it? overall asset allocation, you know, which, cause I think those things are fairly easy, but what I wonder is what, you know, what is the plight of the self-directed investor who wants help deciding whether it makes more sense to use his tax-free savings account or his RRSP, you know, which one is going to be more suitable in his personal situation or, you know, a retired client, for example, needs to make these minimum withdrawals from his RIF and he's trying to figure out how to set that up. So it's a kind of an administrative question as well as a planning question. What help is available for clients like that? Like, like what type of advice are most self-directed investors looking for? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I, I think it's going to depend on the type. I, I do think that there's a, a, a kind of an un, unmet need to some degree, um, which can probably be filled uh, to some degree by, uh, by improving a digital type of, of experiences um, of the type that, that robo-advisor is. Um, but I think that... You know, there's there's an opportunity for firms to uh, do a better job of meeting the needs um, of folks who, again, are not in that high net worth category where they're going to be an attractive candidate for a traditional full service advisor. Um, but they are looking for help with some of those, uh, you know, those kinds of uh, planning decisions. Um, and I think the answer is, is really probably in some combination of a, uh, a, a digital interface, but also supplemented by um, access to a, a, an actual human being, um, whether it's by phone or walking into a branch, uh, but who can provide help with some of those kinds of decisions in a more interactive way, um, but again, without the, the, the high cost and the 
the sort of the high touch that are really more um, more aligned with the needs of of uh, the highly affluent investor. Now, the robo advice model has always seemed to me to be targeted to millennials, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is we expect younger people to be more confident with technology, uh, especially when it comes to their investments. And the second one, you know, as we hinted at earlier, the the sort of older, more affluent investor is probably likely to be the target of, you know, full service financial advisors who have minimum portfolio sizes, et cetera. But in the study, it seemed to suggest that um, a lot of the sort of hardcore true DIY investors who were, you know, using the online platforms actually tended to be Gen Xers and even boomers. um, And that maybe their comfort level with technology is higher than we think. Yeah, I do think that that people tend to um, to underestimate the extent to which boomers really have embraced uh, technology. It's 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 certainly not just a uh, a millennial phenomenon. Certainly, um, and we see you know interest in in digital type um, solutions and capabilities uh, growing really across all segments. Um, and the flip side of that too is I think we can sometimes have a tendency maybe to uh, oversimplify the millennial story and, and think that they're, uh, because they're more comfortable with technology and, and digital types of experiences and solutions, that that means that they're, uh, not interested in, you know, human advice. Uh, and, and our studies, I think, don't really support that view. I think, I think that certainly the increase in, uh, interest and, and adoption and usage of digital tools is there. Uh, but it, it coexists, I think, with a recognition um, that advice, real advice, has value. Um, so one of the things that we've been tracking in recent years is um, what we call the, the rise of the validator segment, right? So the validators um, are folks who, you know, irrespective of whether they work with an advisor or whether they're more self-directed, um, that they want kind of a best-of-both-worlds type of relationship where, they have access to advice uh, when they need it, but they're not interested in delegating decision making purely to an advisor. They want to. They want an advisor who is uh, more of a sounding board, um, someone that they can engage with and get perspective from. But they still want to be very involved in the decision making process. And so, um, so we see millennials, I think, not as moving away from advice, but maybe wanting to to use advice or interact with advice in a, in a different way than, than maybe older generations have. Have you seen any online brokerage in Canada trying to deliver a service like that? Because it seems to me just from a regulatory point of view and from a business point of view, something that's just going to be really, really difficult to deliver. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that, that um, maybe um, is more likely to be delivered in the context of a, a a full service relationship that is is kind of supplemented um, with a, a a self-directed relationship. So I know, you know, the the, the big banks and others who, who kind of have both offerings um, I think are increasingly recognizing that they shouldn't be approaching those businesses as completely siloed and as targeting completely different segments of the investor market, um, but in many cases, there are folks who want to utilize both of those kinds of uh, relationships and that they need to do a better job of creating a more seamless experience um, across a self-directed and full-service 
um, platform than they have in the past. Okay. Now we haven't spent a lot of time talking about specific brokerages and, um, you know, my feeling has always been, uh, all of the brokerages offer a sort of basic level of competent service and that, you know, it shouldn't be an enormously important choice for self-directed investors, but I think it's worth talking about a couple of specifics. So I did want to point out, um, that your, uh, that the brokerage with the highest overall satisfaction rating this year. Um, let's tell us tell us which one it was and uh, which, uh, what it did best. Sure. So um, this year, uh, the highest performing uh, firm in our study was Desjardins. Uh, they had most recently been the top performer back in 2014, uh, and they have returned to the top position uh, this year. Uh our study, without going too far into the weeds on methodology, we're really looking at um, six key factors uh, of satisfaction. So what we call interaction, which would include um, the website, mobile experience, live phone, uh, account information, information resources, uh, trading charges and fees, product and service offerings, and then problem resolution. Um, Desjardins actually was... Uh, the top-ranked firm uh, in not only overall uh, satisfaction, but in interaction, information resources, and product and service offerings. Um, I think they've done a lot of work over the last couple of years in redesigning their digital experience uh, in a way that's uh, that's very uh, intuitive and easy to navigate. Uh, and some of those changes I think we saw uh, reflected in their improved score this year. Yeah, and I think that was a bit of a surprise because it's not a brokerage. I don't think that's on a lot of people's radars. Certainly the interaction that I've had with most people, uh, most of my readers, it's typically one of the big five banks uh, or uh, the next one I want to talk about, which was Questrade. Now, Questrade is uh, one of the independent brokerages, not associated with one of the banks. Um, it's extremely popular among ETF investors because it offers uh, commission-free ETFs. And yet, I was surprised to see that it was actually the lowest ranked one in overall satisfaction levels. But that's not the whole story. So we'll get to the other part of the story later. But why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how that one ended up on the bottom in this case? Sure. And again, I think it's important to note uh, what you alluded to earlier, which is that you know the separation between the top ranked and the bottom ranked firm is, is pretty narrow. So I think the the biggest takeaway um, is, is that uh, to your point, there's no one right fit for everybody, um, and that uh, that uh, firms do different things well, and that there there is actually a lot of parity and competitiveness in the industry. Um, specifically around Quest Trade, um, we found that that. Uh, that to your point, they actually are the top-ranked firm with respect to satisfaction, specifically with uh, with fees and, and commissions. Um, so they are, uh, you know, the perception is they're they're a low-cost provider, uh, and uh, and that was an area that they did extremely well. Um, where they didn't do as well is um, some of the areas with respect to uh, information resources, account information. Um, and interaction scores. So those were areas where they they uh, were not as as um, as high in in terms of their performance, and that really kind of dragged them down. Um, it's also important to note that that different kinds of investors tend to gravitate towards different types of providers, uh, and and our study is really measuring how well these different firms are doing 
at meeting and exceeding the expectations of their own uh, clients. Um, so w- the expectations for one firm's clients may be somewhat different um, depending on their value proposition and the segment of the market that they tend to attract. Yeah, that's right. So I was what I alluded at um, when I first uh, introduced the question was that you had divided your um, survey respondents into three different categories, the sort of true do-it-yourselfer who uses you know, no financial advisor whatsoever, then the validator that you mentioned earlier, and then the third uh, one was that you had called a collaborator, which means that they work um, you know, closely with an advisor. Um, Questrade by far had the highest proportion of true DIY investors. So um, it's clearly a very popular choice with people who are very much making their own decisions and um, that fees and um, you know, like transaction costs, for example, are paramount of, of paramount importance, which I think is a lot of a lot of my readers and listeners as well. Yeah. So, folks, I mean, particularly uh, DIY folks, more active traders, younger investors, um, all of those groups tend to be um, more highly influenced by uh, commissions and fees. And again, that is that is an area which Questrade um, excelled. Just uh, continuing on on the discussion of fees, fees are you know always very important for self-directed investors, and I think most people who are making their own investment decisions with an online brokerage are pretty aware of that. Um, you noted in the study that there was a positive trend here. It was only about thirty four percent of investors said they were that they completely understood fees in the 2015 version of the survey. That improved to forty three percent in twenty seventeen. But forty-three percent still seems fairly low to me. Um, you know, I think that a vast majority of investors should understand what they're paying. So, what can the brokerages do better uh, to get that number higher? And what can investors themselves do to understand this really important subject more clearly? Yeah, I think. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they, they get fixated on the per trade fee, um, and that's what uh, firms like to communicate. And we found that that's well, it's not a really effective long-term driver of lo- loyalty and satisfaction. It is an effective way at getting people to um, to make a decision to, to work with your firm. Uh, but obviously, there's a lot of complexity behind that. Um, and you know what we find is that what really what's really effective in driving fee satisfaction is not just having the lowest per trade fee. It's um, it's it is actually driving transparency. It's it's communicating effectively in a way that clients really understand what they're paying and what they're getting for what they pay. Um, so I think from a firm perspective, it's a lot about, you know, the effectiveness of communication, uh, the frequency of communication, providing information across multiple channels. So not just having something available on your website, uh, but, but communicating it uh, proactively through multiple channels, um, you know, being able to provide explanations uh, you know, within the constraints that obviously legal and, and regulatory provide, uh, trying to make information clear. There's there's so much jargon in the industry that people just don't understand that it becomes very difficult for them, even when there's a lot of disclosure, uh, to really understand what it means means for them, and that's a challenge. Um, as far as from the investor standpoint, don't be afraid to ask questions, right? So I think a lot of times people um, are are reticent um, about asking specific questions and getting um, explanations. Uh, and I think that's, and, and oftentimes they, they sort of assume the worst when they don't really understand. So I think it's, it's really just doing more to, uh, 
to communicate um, and to, to to ask questions and and um, and and make sure that you get the answers that you want um, before making a decision. All right, last question for you, Mike. Um, this is uh, seems to be mostly a good news story, uh, and I would certainly agree. Just anecdotally, it does seem that uh, online brokerages over the last few years have certainly been improving their level of service, keeping their fees low, in many cases reducing them significantly. Um, where is this space headed in the next couple of years? How do you think that they could improve their service levels even more? What's the priority for them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's it's a couple of things. I mean, certainly, again, continuing to develop um, um, mobile capabilities as as consumers increasingly look to um, interact with brands across their their lives as consumers with um, mobile. Uh, and I really I really do feel like um, developing more. Uh, whether it's uh, a, a true robo-advisor or digital capability or whether it's just more effective tools to help with things like goal setting and planning and tracking progress towards goals. Um, I think there's a big segment of the market. I mean, we haven't really seen uh, the, the, the mass migration from the full-service channel that some people were predicting uh, because of CRM2. Uh, but I do think that, that um, as you know, as maybe the, the, the understanding of fees on the full-service side does start to increase over time, um, along with some of these disclosures. And really, frankly, as um, most of the full-service players really become more and more laser-focused on going up-market, um, there's a, really a huge opportunity for, uh, for firms in the self-directed area uh, to, to try to fill that gap in terms of uh, providing not necessarily advice in a legal sense, um, but providing people with tools and support uh, to help them uh, not only be able to execute trades, but really in a more holistic way um, set their financial goals uh, and be able to to um, track their progress towards achieving those goals. And I think that's really you know that's where um, there's a big opportunity uh, to uh, provide a platform that has significant value above and beyond um, just, you know, providing, uh, you know, low-cost transactional support, um, which was obviously the, the, the kind of the genesis of the online brokerage world, um, you know, as it, as, it, uh, as it started. Yeah, it's certainly come a long way, and uh, we appreciate all your insights. Thanks a lot for sharing this, Mike. Sure thing, and thank you for having me. J.D. Power's Canadian Self-Directed Investor Satisfaction Study is not available to the general public, but I will post a link to an overview of the study on my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com. If you want to compare online brokerages in Canada, I'll recommend a few other sources as well. MoneySense has been doing an annual survey since 2013, and I was closely involved in establishing the criteria and writing those articles during the first couple of years. I'll post a link to the most recent rankings on my blog as well. If you want to dig even more deeply, you can visit the website for ServiceCore, uh, the research firm that provided that raw data for the MoneySense rankings. ServiceCore produces its own detailed surveys of online brokerages in Canada, and I think you'll be surprised to see that its rankings are quite different from those of JD Power, so I'll put that link on the site as well. Finally, Rob Carrick at the Globe and Mail does an annual review of online brokerages and robo-advisors, so I'll post links to those resources if you want to check those out. If I can add a little editorial note of my own, I'd suggest not agonizing over which brokerage to use. 
there's a lot of value in convenience and integration. So if you're a customer of one of the big banks, and I suspect most people are, I'd suggest you at least start your search with the brokerage associated with that bank. If low trading commissions are your number one priority, then sure, look at some of the independent brokerages. Just remember that you might be giving up some level of service in exchange for those rock bottom fees. And now it's time once again for another segment of Bad Investment Advice, where we scour the media to bring you the very worst in financial flimflam. Now, I get that magazines need to draw in readers with intriguing headlines, but The Atlantic went a bit too far in its September issue with a feature called Are Index Funds Evil? with a subtitle, A growing chorus of experts argue that they're strangling the economy and must be stopped. Now, I feel a bit bad for the journalist Frank Partnoy, because as someone who worked in magazines myself for many years, I can assure you writers rarely come up with inflammatory headlines like that. He's probably peeved at the editor who slapped it on his work, because the article itself is well-written and fairly even-handed. But it's the thesis of the article that's so troubling. Because if you're new to index investing, this is the kind of thing that can make you second-guess yourself. And I can also see smug financial advisors handing out copies of the article to prospective clients as they explain how active fund managers deserve those 2% fees because they're performing a public service. Here's the article's main argument in a nutshell. For decades, index funds have been held up as a triumph for ordinary investors at the expense of overpaid active fund managers. But the success of index funds has led to some collateral damage, namely, some consumers may be paying more for goods and services. Now, according to the economists quoted in the Atlantic article, a small number of huge mutual fund firms own a significant percentage of many large companies in the U.S. And four of these fund providers, Vanguard, BlackRock, which is the parent company of iShares, State Street, and Fidelity, all manage enormous index funds and ETFs that hold trillions of dollars. Now, because large index funds include stocks of almost all the companies in their universe, they'll frequently be major shareholders of competing firms. So the academic paper cited in the article, for example, says that Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street together hold about 15% of the shares of major U.S. airlines. Well, why is this a problem? Because, these economists argue anyway, the high level of common ownership means a disincentive for companies to compete with one another. Now, this logic is reasonable. So if I own, for example, shares in Delta Airlines, I want that company to be as competitive as possible. So it will take away market share from Southwest and American Airlines. That might mean reducing fares, keeping the CEO's salary in check. But if I'm a mutual fund manager who owns all three of those airlines, I have little incentive to encourage this kind of competitive behavior. This idea has actually been floated around among economists for decades, and it makes sense in theory, but there's been very little evidence that it's actually a problem in practice. However, what's a little different here is that the paper featured in the Atlantic article, and I'll post a link to this on my blog, presents some evidence that plane tickets in the U.S. are now significantly higher than they would have been had all of the airlines been separately owned. So if that's true, the problem of common ownership is likely to crop up in other industries as well, not just in airlines. So if it helps to use a hypothetical Canadian example, think about our five largest banks. Now, most Canadian equity mutual funds own shares of several banks. Broad market index funds are going to own all of them. So if you've ever wondered why 
All the banks offer paltry interest rates on savings accounts, lackluster investment product, uh, products with high fees, and indifferent customer service. Well, maybe one of the reasons is this high level of common ownership. You know, if I'm the manager of a huge index fund that owns all the banks, for example, am I going to hold management's feet to the fire and demand that they be more competitive? Or would I be better off when all of the banks keep their fees and their profits high, even if that's bad for consumers and the economy as a whole? Let's consider whether this argument actually holds up to scrutiny. First, it's not even clear that mutual fund managers are fundamentally failing at encouraging good corporate governance. I mean, the Washington Post reported in May, for example, that ExxonMobil recently saw a shareholder revolt over its reluctance to deal with climate change. The newspaper reported that BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, which collectively are the biggest shareholders in ExxonMobil, voted against management, a move that was hailed by the Post as, quote, an important step for groups that have been trying to force corporations to adopt greater disclosure and transparency about the financial fallout of climate change. But my real problem with the ideas in the Atlantic article isn't just the dearth of real-world evidence supporting them. What I don't understand is why index funds specifically are being painted as the villains. I mean, this article points out that common ownership is a hot topic among economists these days, and several have suggested ways of putting an end to it. So to quote from the Atlantic, quote, one journal article argues that large index funds are violating antitrust law. Another recommends a limit on index funds owning stocks in more than one company in an industry, close quote. But why on earth are such limits being targeted at index funds. I mean, just about all diversified mutual funds, index or otherwise, have significant holdings in companies in the same industry. I mean, look at the largest actively managed funds in the US. They're likely to hold Apple, Samsung, Alphabet, and Microsoft. Here at home, just about every large Canadian equity mutual fund holds a couple of the big banks as its largest holding, and many of them have all of them. I mean, why not file an antitrust lawsuit against the RBC Canadian Dividend Fund, which is an active fund whose largest holding is RBC itself, but that also includes the other four big banks in its top nine holdings? Now, I appreciate that a handful of index tracking ETFs have become absolutely gigantic in the US, but it's not clear that targeting them specifically would solve the problems that come from common ownership. So in fact, I went back to the original academic paper discussed in The Atlantic, and it turns out that it doesn't single out index funds at all. It targets large institutional investors in general. It specifically mentions examples of active fund managers lobbying both airlines and pharma companies to keep their prices high because they own several companies in those sectors. The authors also note that Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's conglomerate, owns very significant stakes in the four U.S. airlines discussed in the piece. So why is the Atlantic framing this as a story about passively managed funds, and why are the defenders of capitalism calling for laws aimed specifically at index-tracking ETFs? Here's my other beef with this kind of argument. Common ownership of public companies through institutional investment funds may have a downside, but it has also brought enormous benefits. The evidence that index funds are harming the economy is awfully weak to begin with, but even if it were true that in some specific, unusual cases, the dominance of index funds has led to slightly higher prices for some goods and services, this would not offset the benefits that index funds bring to ordinary consumers. In the last decade or so, the average investor has been given unprecedented opportunity to build a low-cost, broadly diversified portfolio that simply didn't exist before. Diversified mutual funds in general, 
And low-cost index funds and ETFs in particular have revolutionized investing for the average person. Let's remember that it wasn't so long ago that building a portfolio meant picking individual stocks or paying a broker to do it for you, and people of modest means had no way of doing this effectively. Mutual funds made diversification possible for anyone with as little as a few hundred dollars to invest, and index funds have driven the cost of investing lower than it has ever been. So if saving 90% on investing costs over a lifetime means paying a little more for an airline ticket once or twice a year, that's probably a good trade-off. Any measures designed to constrain index funds by preventing them from holding more than one company in an industry, for example, would completely undermine that progress. Thank goodness no one seems to be taking this foolish idea seriously. Maybe a few ivory tower economists and magazine copywriters think that index funds are evil, but so far just about everyone else recognizes this as bad investment advice. Because you're not quite evil enough. But it's true. You're quasi-evil. You're semi-evil. You're the margarine of evil. You're the Diet Coke of evil. Just one calorie, not evil enough. Once again, we're going to round out the podcast with our Ask the Spud segment, where we answer questions from listeners and blog readers. Joining me as always is my colleague, Amanda DL. Amanda, what is in our email inbox this time? Actually, we've got something a little different today. Instead of an email from a reader, we're going to feature a comment on Reddit, the online forum. In the investing section, someone recently posted this question in September. I wanted to hear comments from others following the Canadian Couch Potatoes ETF model portfolio. I'm investing with the aggressive version, 10% bonds, 30% Canadian equities, and 60% global equities. I invested with a large amount in this portfolio on March 16th. After six months, I have a net loss of 1.94%. That's with eight exclamation points, by the way. I assume I was unlucky with my timing, and I just need to suck it up. Are there others who have this portfolio and have adjusted to a different model? Okay, thanks, Amanda. Now, I feel a little bit guilty about featuring this question because it's something of an easy target. I mean, here's an investor who chose to build a very aggressive portfolio with 90% in equities, and he's shocked that it lost almost 2% over six months. So clearly this is a brand new investor who simply failed to understand that aggressive portfolios can lose an awful lot more than that. I mean, actually, it's not unusual for equity markets to fall 2% in a few hours, let alone six months. But unfortunately, we cannot write our Reddit reader off as uniquely oblivious. This past summer was pretty disappointing for almost all investors as both stocks and bonds delivered negative returns between May and July. And during that time, I heard a lot of similar comments from investors who seemed downright shocked by this downturn, even though the losses were fairly modest. It was a reminder that many people who started investing in the last five years or so really have been spoiled by unusually consistent returns. And I do worry that many of them have overestimated their risk tolerance. When we finally get a real bear market, I worry that they're going to be completely unprepared for the losses that they will suffer, and that might well cause them to abandon their investment plan altogether. So indulge me in a little history lesson, courtesy of some research prepared by Vanguard Canada. Now, these numbers are based on a global equity portfolio during the period from 1980 through the end of 2015. So that's 36 years, which is close to a typical person's accumulation years, assuming you start saving in your late 20s and retire at 65. 
So here are a couple of key takeaways. First, a correction in the stock market is generally considered to be a 10% decline from peak to trough. During the period that Vanguard looked at, there were 12 corrections with an average decline of minus 13.7%. Corrections took an average of about three months to bottom out and about four months to recover. A bear market is defined as a peak to trough decline of at least 20%. And since 1980, there were seven of these, the average loss being minus 33.4%. On average, it took about a year for prices to touch bottom and then about 26 months for them to recover. Now, if you're fairly new to investing, I'm guessing that those numbers surprise you, both the magnitude of the declines and their frequency. It turns out that 10% to 15% losses are downright routine, occurring about once every three years, and much steeper losses are hardly rare, so you should expect a 20% drawdown at least every five years or so. I also want to stress the length of time that it can take to recover from a sharp downturn. I mean, the average was over two years. That can seem like an eternity to people who are checking their account balances frequently. It took an extraordinary amount of patience to wait out the dot-com crash in the early 2000s, for example, not to mention the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So we are going to experience a brutal bear market like this again, and it's going to test the mettle of every investor. That's why I'm so concerned about investors like our friend on Reddit, who seem confident that a 90% equity portfolio is appropriate when a 1.94% decline over six months has him shocked. So let's be clear here. That portfolio is almost surely going to see a loss between 30% and 40% eventually. And that's going to lead to a lot more exclamation points in his next comment. So I would urge him to seriously consider a more balanced asset allocation now before he's scared out of the market altogether. And if you're an index investor who's only been at it for four or five years, please understand that we are enjoying a very comfortable bull market and it can't last forever. So if you've had an aggressive portfolio during this period, you've reaped the benefits, but you haven't yet experienced the anxiety that comes with large, swift losses. Make sure that you understand the maximum loss your portfolio can be expected to suffer. A good rule of thumb is to assume that the equity portion can be cut in half. So a portfolio of 60% equities could see a decline of 30% or so. If you don't have the time horizon or the stomach to endure that kind of loss, there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to be conservative, but you do need to build a portfolio that's more appropriate to your temperament and your circumstances. Thanks, Dan. Remember, if you've got an investing question that you'd like featured on Ask the Spud, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com and you may hear it on a future podcast. That's going to do it for another episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. We've got some great episodes in store for you in the weeks and months ahead, so make sure you subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting software. Thanks as always to the folks who make this happen, including Nick Jaworski, Tara Hunt, Nicole Pomeroy, Amanda DL, and all my colleagues at PWL Capital. We'll see you next time.